Friends, have you ever had that experience of uh, a job turning out to be way more difficult than it sounded like it was going to be? You know that experience of something being way easier said than done? Now, I have that experience every time I try putting together flat pack furniture. So, for example, earlier this year we went down to Sydney to buy Felicity a wardrobe and along with soon the rest of Sydney, we ended up at the Ikea store at Tempe. Who has been to the Ikea store at Tempe? Is it not massive? It is twice the size of the Sydney cricket ground. It is so big they give you a little map with a designated pathway through the store so that you don't get lost. From entry to exit, it is a two and a half kilometre walk. They reckon it stocks about 9,000 different items and I'm thinking 8,999 of them are flat packs. It is the flat pack capital of the Southern Hemisphere. So we go to the store, park in one of the 1,775 car spots in the car park, hit the store and eventually find the wardrobe that Flick is interested in. I'm thinking it looks easy enough to put together. Someone's obviously put one of them together because it's on display in front of me. And I check the website and they say in writing, and I quote, IKEA products are designed in such a way that they can be easily assembled yourself. So I'm feeling pretty good. About it. I can do this. I should have got suspicious when it took two of us to lift the flat pack onto the trolley. 93 kilos of flat pack. And then I opened it, and I'm the first to admit that I'm no handyman, but seriously, who can easily assemble 145 separate pieces? I kid you not. I almost fainted. IKEA products are designed in such a way that you can easily assemble them yourself. Friends, I am here to testify some things are a lot easier said than done. And it's all got to do with tonight, with this morning's reading because what I discovered concerning flat pack instructions is equally true of the Old Testament law. Both are a lot easier said than done. In fact, when it comes to the Old Testament law, you know all those rules and regulations that God gave to Israel in books like Exodus that we looked at earlier in the year, all those laws which God gave them like the famous Ten Commandments, they actually turn out to be impossible to properly keep. And that's what this morning's passage is all about. You may have noticed while it was being read, it's all about the law. The law gets mentioned 16 different times and it's all about how Israel were incapable of keeping it. And why does God want us here at Early Church to know that Israel were incapable at keeping the law? Well, it leads to a very important lesson that affects not just Israel, it's a lesson that affects every single one of us in this room. What's the lesson? Well, the way the passage works is that the lesson to the passage is kept till right at the very end of the chapter. Almost so as to bring suspense, uh, to build up suspense. It's not till right at the very end of the chapter that the punchline of the entire chapter is just dropped into the text very dramatically. And therefore, so as to try and do justice to the dramatic effect of all of that, do not look ahead and spoil the punchline, okay? We stop short of it in the reading. Do not now look down, okay? I want to see all your faces. Do not look down. 
Do not spoil the effect of the last couple of, uh, of verses. Let's try and get a feel for how the chapter builds us up for them by looking at how it unfolds. And it unfolds firstly with an opening illustration about marriage. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law. Now, before we get too far into it, just notice in passing there, Paul is going out of his way to speak to those who know the law. He's very much got Jews in view with this chapter. Now, he's already done this a few times in the letter. He's frequently gone off and said things specifically to the Jews that often, uh, after describing a bit of the gospel, he'll go off and defend that bit of the gospel to the Jews. That's because the Jews especially had problems coming to terms with why Jesus is so important. I mean, the Jews were God's special people in the Old Testament, and so they tend to think, why do we need to be saved by Jesus? We're already God's people. We don't need to be saved. Likewise, last week. Remember last week? Remember last Sunday? Chapter 6, it was all about the way we are changed in Christ. That God establishes a union between Christ and his people so that we have died to sin. We are slaves to obedience. Well, the Jews would have read the last chapter and they would have been thinking something along the lines of, well, why do we need to be in Christ in order to be obedient? We've got all God's laws to help us be obedient. We don't need Jesus for us to be obedient. Well, that's not quite how it works, says Paul. And so in this chapter, Paul takes the time to defend to the Jews what he said last week in the previous chapter about how obedience needs to come through Jesus. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Okay, point of illustration is pretty straightforward. A marriage becomes null and void when one person in the marriage dies. Paul says it's the same with the Old Testament law. Death releases us from the Old Testament law. And he is here building on what we discovered last week in chapter 6. Because remember, when we trust in Jesus' death on the cross, God establishes a union between us and Christ as our representative so that what's true of him is true of us. He died, we died. And the point is, just like a death makes a marriage null and void, our death in Christ makes the Old Testament law null and void. Verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Now, this is an interesting point. Paul is writing to Jewish Christians, telling them that the Old Testament law is now null and void to them. It's not about keeping the law anymore. It's about belonging to another, belonging to Jesus which makes it all the more amazing when nowadays even Christians sometimes think that being a Christian means having to keep certain Old Testament laws, like tithing or a Sabbath. Paul is here telling Jewish Christians they have died to the law. Us Gentile Christians who were never even given the law in the first place, how much more are we released from it? might want to think about that. Back to Romans, though. Why does Paul want the Jewish Christians to especially get this? 
Well, it's because the Old Testament law did nothing to help them stop sinning. Verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. You see what that's saying? Despite what the law said, sinful passions made Israel disobey the law. Paul says we Jews, because we were controlled by the sinful nature, we bore nothing out of the law but fruit for death, which is why they need to be released from the law, which is why they need to die to the law, because it's not the law but the Spirit of Christ who enables us to serve God in obedience. Verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, this mention of the new way of the spirit again takes us to an important moment in the book of Romans. Up until now, Paul has hardly ever mentioned the Holy Spirit in the book at all. Here we are in chapter 7. Paul has only mentioned the spirit three times. All that's about to change. Next week in chapter 18, the Holy Spirit will be mentioned 14 times. Because what Paul is going to go on and do is explain that God's own spirit is how Christians become obedient to God now. That it's God himself at work in us through his spirit, enabling us to break the mastery of sin in our lives, allowing us to live out of slavery to obedience now. In the words of verse 6, we serve in the new way of the spirit. But... Now, for today, before we get to the 14 mentions of the Holy Spirit next week, Paul wants to spend a bit more time clarifying stuff about this Old Testament law. Because, are you keeping track of this? Basically, Paul has just told Jewish Christians that they have been released from trying to keep the Old Testament law because all the Old Testament law ever did was bring them death. The Old Testament law was flat-pack instructions on steroids. Easy to read, hard to do. Human sinful nature actually made it impossible for them to do them properly. Which is a little confusing. Because God gave Israel the law in the first place. Why did he do that? It sounds like either the Old Testament law itself was a bad thing to be given, or else it only ever produced bad things. So how does it work that God gave the law to them? Well, that's the sort of stuff that Paul wants to now tackle to clarify in the rest of the chapter. Clarification number one. Does all this stuff about the law producing death, does it mean that the law was actually a bad thing? Well, no. The law wasn't bad. People were. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, is the law a bad thing? Did God do a bad thing in giving it to Israel? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would have known what coveting really was if the Lord had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the command, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Get the point? Law wasn't bad. It was, it was he who was the problem. In verse 7, he, he says that the law was in fact helpful because I, your typical Jew, I wouldn't have even known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. The law helped me see what was right and what was wrong. Problem was, I just couldn't do the thing that was right. So the law says, don't covet. In other words, don't desire what other people have got. And I start thinking, don't covet. I hadn't actually thought of that before. And those other people do look like they've got some really nice stuff. And so suddenly I'm coveting. 
It's a bit like earlier in the talk. You know, earlier when I told you not to look ahead and read the last couple of verses in the chapter so as to spoil the punchline, <laughs> honestly, did not every fibre of your body want to read ahead now and look at those last couple of Simply because I told you not to? In the words of verse 8, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by my command, produced in you every kind of desire to look forward. Heard of a bloke who uh, used to work in a microbiology lab. And in the lab, there was a huge sign on the wall in the micro lab that said, do not lick your lips. Because apparently there were bugs floating all around and the last thing you'd want to do in a lab like that is lick your lips and then take them into your digestive system. Trouble is, Steve reckoned nobody ever thought of licking their lips until you saw the sign. And Now, even I'm wanting to lick my lips and because once you've seen the sign, it's almost impossible not to do it. Now, the sign wasn't bad. Good thing not to lick your lips in a microbiology lab. It's people that's the problem. Same with a poor old Old Testament Jew. Good Old Testament laws produce death. Verse 9 describes it. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So, was the Lord bad? No, it's people who were the problem. But that still is another issue that has to be clarified because, okay, the law was technically good in that it said good things, but it still brought death, as verse 10 just said. So does that mean the law still wasn't a very good idea on God's part? I mean, it only seemed to ever produce bad things for Israel. Well, again, Paul says the answer is no, because it was actually a good thing for the law to produce death. Verse 13 explains it. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandments sin might become utterly sinful. Now, it's subtle, I know, a little confusing. The verse says that the law produced death, but it denies the fact that it became death. In other words, death was not the end goal of the law. Yes, it produced death, but it was good that it produced death in order that sin might be recognised as sin, he says. In other words, it was good that the law produced death in me because it showed I'm a sinner. It opened my eyes so that I saw sin as utterly sinful. It's like drug or alcohol addiction, substance abuse. They always say that the first step to recovering from those sorts of addictions is to admit that you need help. First step to recovery, admit you're an addict. Well, that's exactly the role of the law for Israel, to help them admit they're addicted to sin, which is exactly what Paul now goes on to very vividly describe. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. In other words, as a God-fearing Jew, Paul wanted to obey the Old Testament law, but he didn't. He just kept doing what, what he hated doing. Verse 19. For what I do is not the good I want to, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another work at, a law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Now, it's hard to keep track, I know, of the do's and do-nots and all that sort of stuff. But those verses, are they are, they are describing exactly what an addiction problem looks like, aren't they? That when someone is addicted to something, they know it's harmful for them. They want to give it up. In moments of clarity, they want to be clean. They want to be rid of it. They just can't. And they just keep being dragged back in and doing what they really actually don't want to do. That's the Apostle Paul under the law. Wanting to obey God but not being able to do what he wants to do because he's addicted to sin. Which was exactly the point of the Old Testament law in the first place. The role of the law was to drive Israel to the point of saying, Hi, I'm Israel and I'm an addict. And that's exactly the point that the passage wants us to reach. And it's exactly now that Paul drops the punchline into the text. Here at the very end, here is the lesson it's all been building to. Now we get to read the last couple of verses. I know you've already seen them. Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Bottom line, this is a chapter about why we need Jesus. It is a chapter defending what Paul said last week in chapter 6. It is only through a union with Christ. It's only by being in Christ that we can die to sin. And it's a chapter written to men who know the law, telling them that they of all people should know that. Because the whole point of the law was to convict them that they were sinaholics. And of course, it is at this point that the chapter becomes relevant to us because it's not just Israel with a sin addiction, is it? The Bible testifies that it's all of us. And sure, the Old Testament law may have been specifically given to the Jews to help them see the problem in themselves, but Jew and Gentile alike, we've all got the same problem. And if you don't believe it, give it a go yourself this week. Have a go this week at not sinning at all. This week, be always loving, no matter what happens. Always gentle to other people, no matter what's going on. Have a go to being always forgiving, always content, always honest. This week, have a go and not doing a single thing wrong. See how you go. And if you actually think you do okay, um, ask the others in your family how you really went. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I could do that if I wanted to, I just don't really want to, that's an addict talking, isn't it? Because we are deeply addicted to We can't help it. And simply trying to obey rules and regulations and commandments doesn't help. Something far more radical needs to happen if we are ever going to put sin to death in our life. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Something radical happened. Jesus Christ died on the cross as our replacement and our representative. 
And we've been delivered from both the punishment and the power of sin over us. The addiction has been broken. And sure, sure, we're not, we're not perfect now and we've got to be really careful. We're not silly about things. There are situations we need to avoid. And this side of the new creation, there's going to be lots of times of relapse. We know that. But sin's control over us has gone. As now we serve God, slaves to obedience, dead to sin. And as this week, verse 16 has said, we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. See, think back to my debacle with IKEA product 602135. What I now know is that IKEA Tempe actually offer an assembly service in which, quote, dedicated professionals who uphold high standards of trust, quality and craftsmanship ensure that your assembly is done right. They have people who come out and help you put it together. Now they tell me. (laughs) How good would it have been to have had one of them with me doing it? Well, when it comes to obeying God, that's effectively what God has done. He has given us his spirit to direct us, to encourage us, to help us. And that is wonderfully reassuring because it means that no matter what you might have to go through this week, no matter what challenge you might have to go through, no matter what temptation you might have to go through this week, no matter what struggles there are, you will not have to go through them alone. You have God's spirit. But that's actually what next week's about. I'll pray. Father God, thank you that in our addiction to sin you have rescued us from the punishment and the power of sin in our lives. Father, thank you that as your people, we have died to sin and are slaves to obedience as we walk and serve you now in the new way of the Spirit. Father, we rejoice in that and we thank you. And we pray that as your people, we would be good at expecting more of ourselves so that we might be the people that you have called us to be, so that you would be honoured, Jesus Christ would be proclaimed in our very lives. Amen.